thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So we continue our study of the book of Genesis, and we're now going to go through chapter 18, another very important chapter for us. By way of summary, before I read the chapter to you, this chapter is divided into two parts, one where God appears in a theophanic vision to Abraham while he's standing or sitting by the Oak of Mamre. And speaks to him and promises him that by next year, this time, Sarah will give him a son. And then the next part of the chapter is when God decides to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah and check whether what he has heard about them is actually true. And we get to understand this language a little bit better. And there is this famous, uh, one might call haggling between Abraham and God where he would say, if you were to find 50 righteous men, would you destroy the city for the sake of 50, and then 40, and then 20, and then 10? So these are the two most important components of the chapters and are really tightly related. They are related because, obviously, they're both aspects. They're both sides of the covenant. The, the promise of Isaac being born is obviously the fruit of the covenant, the blessings for people who are living it according to God's will. And the punishment that is going to be, that is going to come about for Sodom and Gomorrah are obviously flow from the curses of the covenant for those who do not abide by the covenant. So we see how the covenant is still very much the center, the focus of this chapter. So verses 1 through 15 speak of the appearance of, the, of God, and then verses 17 through 33 deal with Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and verse 16 is the pivotal verse between them. In both parts, we see the nobility of the character of Abraham, because in the first, part, the first part, pay attention as I read it, pay attention to the way he actually go about receiving these strangers. He shows the nobility of his character by his generosity, by his alacrity, by the speed by which he actually serves them. And then in the second part, we, saw, we, we see his uh, care for others and his sense of mercy because he's interceding on behalf of people whom he doesn't know, who are strangers to him, and possibly people who had wanted to harm him. If you remember when the king of Sodom had come back, Abraham told him they would have nothing to do with him. So that might have been construed by the king of Sodom as an insult. 
And yet here is Abraham interceding for them. Um, it isn't only just because Lot lives there, but it is because he's truly concerned about the fate of these people. And all of it shows the nobility of his character. There is also a very important aspect we're going to look at is this conversation or this dialogue between God and Sarah. Uh, there, is, there has been an ongoing uh, disclosure of revelation on God's part because when God made the revelation to Abraham way back when, when he started the book of Genesis, when, he, when we saw it, it was simply that I will make you a father of multitude. Then the revelation became more precise, you will have a son. And then they went about and had Ishmael through Hagar. But that was not it. Then there was another promise, you will have a son. And now the promise is becoming very specific, you will have a son in a year. So you see this progressive, this progression of the revelation of God through time. And it is obviously done for uh, educational purposes. It is done for our good. God does not reveal what we do not need to know. He reveals what we need to know when we need to know it. And, and He expects us to be patient. He expects us to be uh, faithful. And He expects us to be uh, present waiting for Him when He comes. Those are His expectations. These are, by the way, our duty. They're not a demonstration of extraordinary uh, virtue. This is simply merely the Christian duty of every man and woman to wait for the right time to do the right thing. And most often we get ourselves in trouble because we get impatient. Uh, so, for instance, uh, many cases we might uh, pick the wrong person to marry because we're insecure, we're impatient, we're we're prodded by negative values or negative uh, feelings or negative emotions. Right? Whereas God always wants what's best for us in the right moment, at the right time. Or we might start a business that may not be really meant for us. Or we may go on vacation in a place where we're not supposed to go. Because we haven't bothered asking God if that would be the right place for us. And oftentimes, asking God doesn't simply mean that we're going to sit and, you know, in church for hours waiting for His response. Asking God means being attentive to the way He speaks to us through the normal, everyday events of our life. So if we are planning on going to Honolulu, and if we end up with a plane tickets who are way above our budget and end up in a place that doesn't really meet our needs, and things are just accumulating in a negative way, it's God's way. He's tapping us on the shoulder saying, I don't want you to go there. That's not what I want for you. Don't go there. Okay? Or if we think we're called to be married and we're really insisting on it, when, when he has a different call for us, we're going to end up being miserable. Because unless we do what God wants us to do, we're going to be miserable. Why? Because we're creatures. He created us for a purpose. God didn't create us randomly. Every one of us, when we were created, God had a purpose in mind. Just as when an artist paints a flower as part of a large canvas, he's got a very specific purpose for that flower. He's not painting it randomly. Hmm? So it's this dialogue that is very important, and we see some of it here today. It will be some important lessons we can take from it. 
All right, so why don't we read then this chapter. If you have your uh, scripture with you, follow with me in chapter 18 then, beginning with verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men stood in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I fetch a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham hastened into the tent to Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the servant who hastened to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you in the spring, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you in the spring, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men men set out from there, and they looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall bless themselves by him? No, for I have chosen him, that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry which has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou indeed destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou then destroy the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from thee to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that that from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered, Behold, I have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Wilt thou destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He he answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, 
Or let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Or let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. As I said earlier, there are two parts in this, uh, in this chapter. 1 through 15 is where we deal with hospitality, where Abraham receives the three mysterious uh, personages who showed at his tent, and then verses 17 through 33, where we deal with the intent of God towards Sodom and Gomorrah. First, let's deal with the hospitality to strangers, verses 1 through 8. As you notice in verse 1, And Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. In ancient times, they did not have specific subdivision of time as we have it today, in hours, minutes, and seconds. They indicated time by certain um, events, for instance, the heat of the day or the cool of the breeze, to indicate the shifting of the sun. The heat of the day, therefore, can be any time during the day where it's really hot, closer to noon, but it could be anywhere from, say, 10 to 3 or 4 in the afternoon. The, in, in, the, in ancient uh, culture, especially in nomadic culture, the uh, tents were basically made out of, um, um, well, they, they were designed, the tents were designed, well, they were made of goatskin, and they were designed to hold the heat during the night and cool off in, during the day by opening up flaps. And you'd basically sit next to the flaps because that's where the breeze, due to the um, differential in temperature between what's inside and outside, would cool you off. And that's what Abraham was doing. So it's really siesta time. That is not the time you'd find people walking outside. That's the time when everybody would not walk because it's too hot. And in the text, you notice, and the Lord appeared to him. Right, so... That uh, means that while he was sitting there, there was nobody, and then he lifted his eyes, and there they were. He didn't see them coming from afar. The guards who probably were stationed to guard the entire flock did not warn of their coming. They just were there. That's the first indication to Abraham that something very special about these people. Now, hospitality customs required that all strangers approach a dwelling where to be offered the opportunity to rest, refresh themselves, and eat a meal. One reason why this was done is to transform potential enemies into friends. Protocol required that the meal served to the guest exceed what was first offered. So whatever you offer first, whatever you say you're going to offer, you actually exceed that. And those of you who are from the Middle East know exactly what I'm talking about. In fact, from most of these cultures back there, all the way, all the way through India, this is very common. If you're visiting from the United States and somebody happens to tell you, why don't you come over and have a coffee at 4 o'clock, you know it's not going to be a coffee, right? You better fast for the, you know, for the past three days to put up with what they're going to offer you. And they're going to get really upset with you that you don't eat, right? So, you know, the concept of Weight Watchers hasn't reached those cultures yet, right? So that is not something new. This is really embedded into ancient customs the purpose of which was to make sure that one was that when one was received, you 
um, you would receive such a person and provide for him so that when he leaves, he would be in your debt. It was a mechanism that was put in place to make sure that enmity would not be created. Because this is a, this is a, these are societies rife with enmity, right? And they don't have a proper mechanism to deal with it other than on a very personal basis, right? So we don't have institutions that can provi- prevent enmity from occurring. Enmity can flare at any moment in time. So you really have to rely on these types of very strong hospitality for people to be received. Now, obviously, the connection with, with the origin is lost, and what is left is simply a sense of hospitality. People tend to be very, very hospitable towards you if you were to go to these places. And it, the really interesting thing is that people who live in the United States are, um, would feel guilty if when they go back, say, to these countries, they don't bring with them a luggage full of gifts for everybody they're going to go and visit. It's like you cannot not do that. Um, that, that sort of stuff. So that is, this is what's uh, justifying the behavior of Abraham in one sense. And that's what he, he does exactly that. So, for instance, Abraham simply required that the meal served to the guest, uh, I'm sorry, um, simply offers a meal, so sit down and get you a morsel of bread, but then he goes and prepares a feast, right? And in particular, he prepares fresh meat, which is not usually found in a, di- in a daily diet. You don't eat fresh meat. Why? Because it spoils so quickly without a fridge. And there aren't many fridges back then, so you tend to eat mostly meat that has been salted, meat that can keep longer time. So obviously he's going out of his way to provide for them a meal that is unusual. Uh, This is very common to, as I said, to the entire region. So for instance, uh, this meal that is described here is very similar to that offered by Daniel to the representative of the gods, Qatar Wahasis, when he comes traveling through town in the Ugaritic epic of Akhat. So in that epic, this Katarwa Hasis is equivalent in the Greek to Hermes, the messenger of the gods, and he shows up at the door of that guy, and this guy prepares for him a meal that is equivalent in description to what you see here. So again, this is something that is very much part of the entire culture of the, of the region. Foot, foot washing. So he offers that uh, the, the, they can wash their feet. Washing the feet of the guests was a standard act of hospitality in a dry, dusty climate. Uh, most people either had sandals, open leather sandals, or enclosed scuff leather boots. Neither style succeeded in keeping out the dirt. So um, that was a very common custom back then uh, to do so, and that's what he does here. Now, flour and baking, the three seas of flour, the, the quantity, the 20 quarts, he basically required 20 quarts be cooked, be prepared, um, reflect Abraham's generosity to his guests. It's a lot of bread, way more than they really need, but he wants to make sure that they're not going to be lacking of anything. And um, they don't have, remember, nomadic, uh, nomadic folks don't, didn't have ovens. So the way you cook the bread is that you put it next to a fire, to a heated pot, or a Dutch oven. That's how you prepare it. And um, curds and yogurt are served along with the meal, uh, and they're byproduct of the herd, obviously. And the fact that Sarah remains in a tent may reflect the custom of women not eating with men. But it's not, it's not certain, that's not clear why she remains in a tent, but that might be the possibility. So these are sort of general, general common, 
comments about the custom, customs of the time that uh, this text is obviously um, seeped into. The Lord appeared to him, and this is the only example of a formula that is used with, without some verbal declaration immediately following it. So usually when the Lord appears, he will say, I am the Lord Almighty. There is a declaration that comes across here. There's nothing. And it's very unusual in scriptures. Many things are unusual about this text when compared to the rest of the Old, uh, of the, of the Old Testament. And uh, the other interesting thing is that unlike other theophanies, other apparitions of God, this one is not accompanied by the building of an altar or the offering of a sacrifice. So Abraham has no doubt who he's dealing with. He knows right away because of the rest of the text. But he doesn't build an altar and offers God sacrifice. Instead, what he does is he offers hospitality. And so in a, in a Talmud, for instance, there is a passage that says, Hospitality to wayfarers is greater than welcoming the divine presence. This is how important hospitality is. So obviously the two laws that God, that Jesus gave was, were love, God, and love your neighbor like yourself. And obviously you cannot love your neighbor like yourself if you're not hospitable. Now, the really interesting thing, and you see how cultures either support and facilitate the work of God, or they, they um, make it more difficult. They create obstacles. A culture that is focused on productivity, a culture that is focused on work, a culture where distances are great, make it much harder to be hospitable. Particularly when the day of the Lord, Sunday, is a day of work. It is a lot more difficult for us living here to be hospitable than for people who live in cultures who go at a much slower pace. But it does not mean that the requirement of hospitality is any less. The fact that we live in a society that makes it harder for us to be hospitable does not mean, does not excuse us, does give us an excuse not to be so. We still are required to be hospitable. Keep that in mind. This is really important. Why? Because it speaks about the way we manage our time. So the difficulty for us, the requirement, the challenge to manage our time with hospitality in mind. So on Sundays, what do we do? Are we, do, are we doing the laundry? Are we fixing things around the house? Are we busy working? Or are we structuring our day to go to Mass and then spend time with the family or with friends? And are we deliberate about who we invite? Are we thinking about people who need hospitality? Maybe some friends we haven't seen in a while, they live alone. The elderly. Do we think about that on Sunday, or is Sunday purely a day to be spent on us? How are we managing our time? Those are questions that are very much important. And you know, when we go to con confession, there, there are one kind of sin that we really have challenges with, which is called sins by omission. Right? We, we tend to be good at mentioning those things we have done, those sins that we have done, 
but really have a challenge at mentioning those sins because what we have not done. And hospitality is one of those. It doesn't even enter our perception that we basically have sinned against God because we have not been hospitable. Okay, so something we really need to think about more. And while I'm on the subject of the things that, uh, that um, we should also consider in our spiritual examination of conscience, I do recommend, when you have a moment, to um, go to newadvent.org and then check out gluttony, the sin of gluttony, which tends to be one of those sins which we do not pay enough attention to. How many of you were aware of the fact that eating very quickly is actually a sin of gluttony? How many of you knew that? So, you, you might want to take a look at what St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, the, what we call the ordinary doctor of the church, ordinary not in the sense that he is not extraordinary, but ordinary in the sense that when in doubt you go to St. Thomas. Right? Talk, you know, his description of what gluttony is all about. And when we go to restaurants and we're faced with those portions, and I'm, I'm giving you this as another example of how cultures, and it's really related to this topic, because we're going to talk about Sodom in a little, little while, how cultures can either help or detract from or, or be an impediment to holiness. And we, we, we must be aware of that. Yes. Oh, can I define gluttony? No, I'd like you to go to newadvent.org and read that, that, that whole uh, one-pager about gluttony. But yes, I will. Gluttony is the sin related to food. You know, when we eat too much, that's the sin of gluttony. But we tend to have a very simplistic view of what it means to eat too much. Like, for instance, if I ate five chickens and I ate, it, I ate too much, yeah, that is a fact, but where is the bar? And if you were to go there and read it, you'll see that the bar is much, much, much lower than most of us may be comfortable with. You had a question? Yes. We are not taking time to really enjoy what is given us. We do not, we do not realize the good that is given us. We are, not, we are basically um, essentially re- reducing the value of food, right? And um, we're making short shift of God's gift to us. And obviously, when we eat too, too quickly, we can eat a lot more. That's the other reason, right? If you eat slow, slow, if you slow down the pace at which you can eat, you'll eat a lot less because the signals from your stomach to your brain have time to arrive. It takes 20 minutes. You know that, right? It takes 20 minutes for the brain to realize, oh, I'm not hungry anymore. And during those 20 minutes, we'll probably eat in like three. Right? So that's why. Also, so all these all these reasons. I don't want to dwell too much on gluttony. I thought I'd mention it to you as one other area that needs a little bit more care on our part when we're doing our examination of conscience. Yes. Well, yes and no. For instance, can you truly overindulge in listening to sacred music? It's harder to make the case, right? I'm sure you can, but it's not as easy or it's not as common. Right to make the case in indulging in sacred music, there is no such sin, right, that matches the sin of gluttony in that category. But still, yes, there could be abuses. I agree. There, the the three men 
Who are they? The three appear to him. Right? Who are these three men? Well, St. Augustine makes a case, and a very strong case, that these three men were actually angels. And he quotes particularly from the letter to the Hebrews, where it's written, For thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Eusebius of Caesarea states that the Lord God is said to have appeared as a common man to Abraham while he was seated by the oak of Mamre. But Abraham immediately fell down, although he saw a man with his eyes and worshipped him as God, besought him as Lord and confessed that he was not ignorant as to who he was, using these very words, O Lord, judge of all the earth, will you not judge righteously? And so uh, Caesarus of Eusebia, who, is, uh, who was a bishop, and who had who written the uh, uh, oldest um, history of the church, commenting on the passage, states that Abraham recognizing him God because of the whole conversation he's going to have with him later. Right. So Saint Augustine says they're angels. Eusebius of Caesar will say he recognized him that he was God. Saint Ambrose will tell us that Abraham, who was glad to receive strangers, faithful to God, and tireless in the service fulfilled his duty, saw the Trinity typified. So he added religious devotion to hospitality, for although he, be, he beheld three, he adored one. And while keeping a distinction of the persons, yet he called one Lord, thus giving honor to the three, but signifying one power. For n- not knowledge but grace spoke in him, and he believed better when he, what he had not learned than w- we who have been taught. All right, so he basically sees in them essentially a figure of the Trinity. This is obviously spiritual reading, and it's perfectly consistent with our faith that the three represented um, the Trinity, right? God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a theophany. We have to be very clear about that. This is not God taking on flesh. They may have walked in front, in front of him, in front of him in the guise of men, but they were not men. And for us, it's a very important and uh, fascinating text because it speaks so much of the Eucharist. For we see bread and we see wine, yet it is neither bread nor wine, but the true presence of God in the Eucharist, as we see it here. God has not become flesh when he appeared to Abraham. It was an appearance so the accident, if you will, is what he saw. But the essence was divine. Do you understand that? Just as in the case of the Eucharist, the accident is bread and wine, but the essence is God. And just so that we be very clear, because some of you may be going now to, maybe going to the, um, to the Latin Rite Masses, where you are permitted to receive bread, the bread and then the wine separately, uh, which um, in which in my view can be very um, problematic for people who do not fully understand the faith. When you receive the host, you're receiving the body, the blood, the body, the blood, right? The soul and the divinity of Jesus Christ, his entire person. When you receive the cup, you receive the body, the blood, the soul, divinity, right? So when you go and receive... You, if you received only the host, you're not missing anything by not receiving from the cup, and vice versa. Which obviously begs the question, if receiving one is equivalent to receiving both, are you receiving twice? Or why are you receiving 
Why are you receiving from both? You see the pedagogical confusion that this can create? Now, obviously, there are fundamental reasons why they're doing it this way, because they want to typify the cedar meal, where you start with a cup, you start with a meal, and you end with a cup. But I am willing to bet that 99.99% of Catholics have absolutely no idea that this has something to do with the cedar meal, and the composition of the cedar meal, and the four cups, and what it means. What they see is the host and the wine. And if you ask them to receive only from one, they tend to be really upset with you, but they can't tell you why they're upset which suggests to me that we are more are driven more by culture than we are really by enlightened faith. Mm-hmm. So we have here, therefore, St. Augustine who says they're angels. We, we also know they appear under the guise of men. And we have St. Ambrose who tells us this is the Trinity. Which of it is it? In my view, it's all three. It is indeed a theo- theophany, the apparition of God under angelic guise, that can take on manifestations of men, but it is truly the Lord. Because otherwise we cannot reconcile the text. When Abraham is speaking to, to, um, to the Lord, and even when the Lord himself is speaking, right? Shall I reveal to Abraham what I am about to do? It is the Lord. No doubt about it. And by the way, when we say the Lord, what do we really mean? Yeah, the second person of the Most Holy Trinity. Not God the Father. It is the same Lord that we know. He is the one who's going to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah. He is the one who, who tells Abraham, is anything impossible with God? It is the same Lord who's been acting through the entire history of mankind. Before the incarnation, after the incarnation, and after his resurrection. You notice that... Um, yeah, and, and uh, I should point out... Um, in verse 2, before I move on to verse 3, I was going to go to verse 3. But looking up, he saw, right? And, and he lifted up his eyes and looked up. Or looking up, he saw. He lifted up his eyes. They, they appear, as I said, with startling suddenness at a time of the day when people would not normally be out. And he saw three men. And there seemed nothing superhuman about them. They looked like men. You saw them, you'd see men. So it's not with the eyes, with the natural eyes that he could see in them the Lord. It is with the supernatural eyes the eyes of grace, that he recognized them for who they were. There was something about them that told him, this is the Lord. Does this remind you of somebody else who did that? Another situation, very similar. At the end of the Gospel of St. John, right? Yeah, the thief, but also what I was having in mind is the Gospel of St. John. At the end of the Gospel of St. John, the last chapter, there are fishing, and then they look out, and John... There's a man on the beach who says, children, have you had anything? Have you, did you catch anything? And they said, no. And he said, throw the net on the other side and you'll catch. And they did. And then that makes St. John realize this man standing there who looked like an ordinary man is the Lord. And he says to Peter, it is the Lord. Right? It is being in tune with the presence of God. And that is something that is very important for us to develop through a fidelity to prayer throughout our day and with privileged time. Because when time comes for God to call us home, when time comes for us to leave this world, when we're going to go through the process of death, as our faculties are weakening, as we cannot hear anymore, and we cannot see, we cannot touch, we cannot feel, our, our faculties, our bodies are just shutting down, and we're left in darkness. And right when, at that moment, 
the devil will, lead, will unleash his most powerful attack against us to make us despair. That's exactly what he's going to do. He's going to wait for us to be in our weakest possible moment to attack us full force. If we have not trained ourselves to recognize the voice of the Lord throughout our life, how will we, in that storm of death, recognize His voice? Do you understand? That is why it's so important to pray. So we can recognize the voice. What does He tell us in the Gospel of St. John? Again, my sheep recognize my voice. They know who I am. But that means there's familiarity to be able to recognize the Lord. We should not take it for granted. Because it will not be. Why? Because we're still alive. And as long as we are alive, we have still a choice to make. And God will honor that. So we shouldn't expect, right at the moment of death, that suddenly, you know, the... the curtain will be parted and we'll clearly see the devil on one side and God on the other. Not going to be like that. That's why we pray for those who are dying, right? They're going through a storm. That's why we give them, that's why we, we are so glad when somebody receives the last rites, the viaticum, because this is the Eucharist that will help them traverse the storm. There are fundamental reasons for those things. So St. Ephraim, for instance, says that Therefore the Lord, who had just appeared to him at the door of the tent, now appeared to Abraham clearly in one of the three. So first he sees three men, and he performs the duty of hospitality. And then he sees in them the Lord. There was these phases through which he went. He, he received them, he was hospitable to them as men, and then he was devoted to them as God. Because, they were God, because he recognized in one of them, at least one of them, God. Now, whether the two others are, presumably two others are basically angels, we know that from Sodom, the story with Sodom, because two of them will go down to Sodom, not, uh, not the Lord. And then he bows to the ground, a gesture of honor and respect, reinforced by the reference to himself as your servant. By the way, this is why in Eastern, in Eastern uh, rites, we do not tend to kneel. Kneeling is not our way of expressing devotion, Right? So if you do go to an Eastern Rite Mass, please do not kneel during the Mass. It is not the proper way to show devotion. Kneeling is a Latin Rite uh, way of showing devotion. It is not an Eastern Rite of showing devotion. The proper way of showing devotion, the Eastern Rites, all of them put together, bowing. You bow. And when you bow, it isn't a flick of the head. No, no, no. You bow down until you can see your knees. You bow down. That's how you show proper devotion. Okay? We need to learn those things because there are proper, the real reasons for why we express them one way in one rite and one way in another. And when we celebrate the liturgy in one rite, we celebrate it in that rite. And uh, being from the Maronite rite, I do tell you that I love kneeling, but I don't kneel during the Mass, because this is not what the Mass calls for. Now, and said, My Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. This is really interesting. Verse 3 is really interesting, because the English translation, as usual, obscures some difficulties in the Hebrew text, which are really important to us. The verbs in verse 3 are in the singular. Okay? So do not pass a singular. So it is as if he's speaking to one person. 
He's addressing three, but he's speaking to one. But the verbs in verses four and five are in the plural. He's addressing three. That's what led St. Ambrose to say what he said, that he recognizes three in one. And that is something, by the way, that Jewish commentaries cannot explain. They do note the difficulty. They have some suggestions why it is so, but none of it is satisfactory. And obviously, none of it can be satisfactory because the real context for it is the Trinity. That's where it becomes fully satisfactory. Okay? That's all I'll say about that. It'd be a really interesting study to do, but we don't have time to cover more about this particular verse. Now, notice what he does. He has water brought for them to bathe their feet. He invites them to rest under the tree. He promises to fetch a morsel of bread, but prepares a lavish feast. And the Talmud again remarks, Such is the way of the righteous. They promise little, but perform much. They promise little, but perform much. We tend to promise a lot and perform very little. In asking Sarah to bake cakes, Abraham specifically requests choice flour. It's very interesting because the finest and the choicest of wheat flour is the type which, from which meal offerings were later brought to the sanctuary. Right? So there is, mystically speaking, the, the form of the liturgy being present here, where Abraham represents the priest, and Sarah typifies Our Lady, who gives us the choicest flower, Jesus himself, to be prepared as our meal. So this is obviously a spiritual reading into the text, but I think it's an important one. Now, as they ate, as they ate, it's really interesting, because um, if you read the Jewish commentaries, whether it's Josephus or uh, Targum Jonathan or the Talmud, none of them would accept the notion of angels partaking of food. But they would understand it, that the phrase, to mean that they only gave the appearance of eating. Um, I, don't, I don't think this is necessarily a contradiction. Because we know that Jesus, after he resurrected from the dead, he went to see his disciples, and what did he say? Do you have something to eat? And he picked it up and ate it. The lesser has no, I mean, the greater has no problem with the lesser. The fact that angels are pure spirit does not mean that they have problem with matter. They can very well deal with matter. So I don't see it necessarily as an objection to them being able to actually consume the food. Because they can talk, take on full appearance of men. All right, just a small point. Now, again, Caesars of Arles, one of the fathers, make a very interesting uh, note. He quotes from the gospel, from the gospels, the synoptics, where Jesus says, whoever does not receive you, go forth and shake off the dust from your feet. Amen, I say to you, it would be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah and the day of judgment than for that town. Right? It is when basically God, Jesus, instructs his disciples, send them two by two, the 70, to towns to, um, proclaim the good news. And he says, if the town doesn't receive you, shake the dust of your feet. I mean, I said you will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than it is for this town. And Caesar of Arles points out that effectively, by washing the feet 
of these strangers, he makes certain that there is no dust left on their feet to be shaken against him. Essentially, it's a way of making sure that he receives the blessings, which is a very um, interesting view that requires us to understand the Gospels in an applied understanding of the Gospels to that passage. Then God says, where is your wife? Now, we're back to the pedagogical style of God. It isn't that God doesn't know where Abraham's wife is. He perfectly knows where she is. But instead of the sort of silence he got from Adam or the reproachful answers he got from him, he got a truthful answer from Abraham and an immediate one. She is in a tent. Okay, what is the point of this conversation? Where's your wife? She's in a tent. Okay, so what? Well, what, is, what is the intent here? Origen points out that the reason why the question is asked and the answer is given is so that Abraham leads us by example. Let the wives, Origen says, learn from the examples of the patriarchs. Let the wives learn, I say, to follow their husbands. For not without cause is it written that Sarah was standing behind Abraham, but that it might be shown that if the husband leads the way to the Lord, the wife ought to follow. I mean that the wife ought to follow if she sees her husband standing by God. Notice what he says. I'm going to repeat it. The wife ought to follow if she sees her husband standing by God. Well, that implies two things now, doesn't, two things now, doesn't it? It implies that the wife knows when her husband is standing by God or not. That means she knows the faith. Okay? So wives are required, just as husbands are required, to know the faith, to know what the church teaches, what is right and what is wrong in the eyes of the church, not in our own eyes. This is a command. And she ought to follow her husband as long as he is being a godly man, a man who is walking in the way of the Lord. But when she sees him not walking in the way of the Lord, she must oppose him to bring him back. That is a duty of the wife. That's a godly wife. And that's a very important duty. Now there is another thing that is important, which is not immediate, immediately obvious from the text. Abraham is out doing all the service. He is out caring for them, standing while they're eating, taking on the responsibility of the care of these people. Not his wife. Not his wife. What does that suggest? Where is she? She is in the tent. She is behind. She's under the shade. What does that suggest? It suggests that in, the, in many of the cultures, especially in the Middle Eastern cultures, there is something that can be sometimes profoundly wrong, where when we invite people, it's the woman who is caring for them, and the man is sitting. Okay, i got some news for you guys. You better be standing on your feet. You are the one to serve. You are the one to receive. You are the one who must take care of your guests. You do not put the burden on your wife to do it while you're sitting, enjoying yourself, and talking politics. That is not how God looks upon it. One more point. Abraham is outside, Sarah is inside. He goes to her and he asks her to prepare something. And she does it. 
What does that suggest? It suggests that there is harmony between the two. There is understanding. There is a love of working together. So he doesn't go and then, you know, order her about and then go back and sit down. He's running around doing a lot of really hard work as well. So there is this sharing of responsibility between the two that must always be at the forefront of a godly man. So th- this, this relationship between Abraham and, and, I, and, uh, and Sarah is what subtends this question, where is your wife? Because God asked that question to another man whose name was Cain. Where is your brother? And Cain said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? But Abraham said, she is in a tent. He knows where she is. And he's he's caring for her. Now, St. Ephraim makes the following comment. She who even in her old age had preserved her modesty, came out from inside the tent to the door of the tent. From from Abraham's haste and from the silence that Abraham imposed on everyone with his gestures, those of his household knew that these who, because, because of the man of God, allowed their feet to be washed like men, were not men. Very interesting that St. Ephraim brings up the silence of everybody else. No one else seems to have anything to say but Abraham and Sarah. And obviously, there are some very important liturgical elements there, again, going back to the idea of the priest and Our Lady, hmm? where we need to be very careful how we speak and what we talk about inside the church. And I think I've told you this a number of times. I hope now you know it by now. When we speak unnecessarily in the church, we're committing a venial sin. You get up, you see someone of your friends, you say, hi, how are you? You're committing a venial sin. Right there on the spot. Why? Because this is language which is not sacred that you are bringing into a sacred space. This is holy ground and only, and o- only that which is holy should be spoken. So during Mass, only the liturgy should be spoken. Anything else needs to wait until we're outside. That's the holy silence of the people of God. This is not a, a forum or an arena where we have a spectacle and when we're done, we can get up and comment about it. This is holy ground. Then there is this conversation now between, between God and, and Sarah. Then there is a sort of, a, as I said, this divine promise that is unfolding, but the conversation is now given to Sarah. He, sa- he tells her, he assures her that she will bear a child in a year from now. So verse 10, The Lord said, I will surely return to you in the spring, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. So he makes a point to let her know, to reassure her that it's going to be her son. And then Sarah says, verse 12, Sarah laughed. Now notice, there's no reaction on Abraham's side. Abraham's reaction is not noted. It's Sarah's reaction that is noted. In last chapter, it was Abraham who laughed. Right? In this chapter, it's Sarah's who laughed. 
Both of them, therefore, have had the same sort of uh, surprise or, or, or uh, expressing doubt in front of something that seemingly is impossible. How can we possibly have children? Now contrast this with Our Lady, who had to face something much more difficult. You shall bear a child, and he's going to be the son of the Most High. But there's no laughter on Mary's part. There was only a very proper question. How can this be since I do not know man? And she's 16 years old. You're talking about a man and a woman who've been following God for at least 30 years. She's 16 years old. 16, 14, I don't know, but something. Somewhere around. She's a teenager. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's incredible, the, the profundity of her faith, even at that young age. Now, in verse 12, she says, Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? Uh, we need to understand this in its appropriate context. Enjoyment in Hebrew, ednab, is, is known to mean abundant moisture and is an exact antonym, antonym to withered. She's basically saying, after all these years have gone by, shall I now, that I'm withered, be able to be fruitful? That's essentially the meaning of the text. That's what she's asking. How could that be? Physically, it's impossible. Physically, it's impossible. And so notice what we tend to do. We always tend to put God in the box. So we draw a box. We say, this is how it should be. And this is how it's going to be. And... If the box means that what we want to have happen is too small for the box, we conclude it's not possible. So what do we do? We basically reduce God to us. We become God. That's what we do when we have this kind of behavior. Now, this conversation happens. I have grown old and my husband is old. Shall I have pleasure? Now, laugh to herself. What does that mean? It means interiorly. She didn't dare express it, so no one heard her. The Lord said, why did, The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Why is the Lord speaking to Abraham and not to Sarah? What is proper to do? You're a stranger, right? You do not address the woman. You speak to, the, to her husband. Okay? Propriety requires that you do not speak directly to the woman. You speak to the man. And likewise, if a woman were to come, propriety dictates that she would speak to the woman and not to the man. Proper comportment. Right? And you notice how God is essentially following this down to the letter, right? So he's, he's basically teaching us how we ought to behave towards each other. Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? So you notice, is anything too hard for the Lord? That's what makes us think that indeed you're dealing with the Lord, right? At the appointed time, I will return to you in the spring, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And now he said, No, but you did laugh. Now he's addressing her directly. You notice? Why is that? Because there's only one judge. Right? There's only one judge. There's only one who knows our intentions, and there's only one who will judge us, and it's the Lord. And when that happens, we are alone in front of Him. 
There's no husband and no children. It's, it's the Lord and us facing our personal judgment. And then she lied. I didn't laugh. But notice how God responded. He simply asserted the truth. You did laugh. But nothing came out of it because of the blessing. The blessing forgives much. So that's why we say, when God blesses you through the covenant of marriage, He will overlook so many of your own weaknesses. And your family will be blessed. Not because you're perfect, but because God is perfect. Just as He shows us here. And which gives us hope. And trust that God will be able to do what He promised He will do. St. Ephraim again tells us, Sarah, even though Abraham was standing behind her to strengthen her, laughed and said, After I have grown old, shall I again have youthfulness? My husband is also old. A sign would have been given her if she had asked to hear or to see and then believe. The point that St. Ephraim is making is that at that moment, instead of laughing, had she asked for a sign, as Our Lady asked, she would have been given one. So she missed that occasion. Right, which, which Our Lady did not. Mary did ask, how, that, how can this be? For I do not know man. Sarah laughed. Right? And still, God gave her a sign by making her to understand that he could read her mind. And only God can read your mind. Nobody else can read your mind. Right? You know that. The devil can't read your mind. The angels can't read your mind. Only God. Yes. Yes. She, she recognized it, right? But at the same time, there has been so much that she's been carrying along between resentment and desires and all of this. And now she hears it pronounced after all these years when her hope has faded completely to ever have a son. And she hears that he's going to have a son and she laughs, right? Instead of being able to, being able to open, being open to the possibility and asking the question. But still God gives her a sign because he shows her that he read her mind. Okay. That's why he said, you laughed. Now, we move on to the, the rest of the, of the chapter. God now makes Abraham privy to one of his historic decisions. And there is this conversation when God says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? No, for I have chosen him, that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. I'm not going to hide from him what I'm about to do so that he may charge, educate, teach his children to keep the ways of the Lord. You see how God is doing what he's doing for the purpose of his people. And therefore, in today's world, he does what he does for the purpose of the church. So that we always are charged to do what he asks us to do. And so in Amos, the prophet Amos, chapter 3, verse 7, Indeed, my Lord God does nothing without having revealed his purpose to his servants, the prophets. And in Jeremiah 23, verse 18, expresses the same notion. He refers to the one who has stood in the counsel of the Lord and seen and heard his word. In both cases, there is this notion that God will reveal to us what he's going to do, and then he goes about doing it. Abraham is granted this privilege... Because he represents the people of God. What is so important about it? Remember what God told him. By you nations shall be blessed. 
And part of the blessing that Abraham can impart, and effectively Israel was to need, had, had been called to impart, is to intercede on behalf of the people. This power of intercession is part of the blessing. All right? Intercession of the saints is a blessing for us. We all know that. But that is the gift that God gave us, to have the saints intercede for us. And that's why He's granted that power. That's why He tells him what He's about to do, to give him the opportunity to intercede. And He does. So now in verse 18, 20, and in verse, I'm sorry, verses 20 to 21, we see God going down to Sodom. He doesn't go only down to Sodom, but Sodom represents the main, is the main city among the five cities, if you recall, that had fought the war against the four kings. There were five kings against four kings, and Sodom is the main city. But it's this whole area that is going to be affected, what he's about to do. And the text says he's going to go to check and see whether what he heard, whether the cries that have come to him are indeed true. Now, we have to understand this in its appropriate context. It isn't that God is lacking proof. It isn't that he is missing something. He's doing this for two purposes. Number one, to teach us that we must be very, very careful before we bring in accusations. Right? We have to be very careful against tarnishing the reputation of somebody or speaking ill of someone without really strong evidence. That's why you'd see that the church moves very slowly on so many cases because the church takes her time for these reasons. The church takes her time for these reasons. We tend to be very quick to judge, which is something we have to be very careful with. Right? It denotes sometimes a lack of charity in our part. We have to be careful with that. That's reason number one. And reason number two, because he is just. So that no one may say that he did what he did without complete understanding of the entire picture, he acts before us to show us that he is indeed a just God. And we have to understand it in the overall um, structure of the, of the um, ancient world. So, for instance, you need to realize that in the ancient cultures, the gods, whether... Uh, Phoenicians or um, Chaldeans or or Greek or Romans were very very um, uh, fickle. They did whatever they wanted. The best way to describe the gods were like a bunch of uh, um, spoiled kids who did what they felt or did as they pleased. In fact, there is a text. It's a fairly ancient text called, um, known as the, it's a Mesopotamian composition, known as the Poem of the Righteous Sufferer, dating from about the middle of the second millennium before Christ. It's about 1500 before Christ. Presents the complaint of a pious man whose world has crashed about him, despite the fact that he followed all the demands, all the cultic demands of his gods. He did as the gods asked him to do. What is good in what is good in one's sight is evil for a god. What is bad in one's own mind is good for his god. Who can understand the counsel of the gods in the midst of heaven? The plan of a god is deep waters. Who can comprehend it? Where, where has befuddled mankind ever learned what a god's conduct is? Judeo-Christian faith is a faith of rationality. 
God is rational. By this we mean that he reveals his intent. His intent is comprehensible. His intent is trustworthy. And his intent is the foundation of our own moral conduct. And God demonstrates it here in this conversation with Abraham. This whole exchange between Abraham and God presupposes that God is just. That God does not act um, randomly. And I would also tell you that this text here is one of the foundation of the scientific method. You know, this whole debate between science and religion is completely fake because the scientific method is based, is predicated upon the notion that the universe can be known, can be understood, that there are laws, mathematical laws, that govern the universe. And that those laws are stable, and those laws are true, and those laws are trustworthy. And this is a reflection of the rational God. This is very important for us to realize this. The foundation of the scientific method is the Judeo-Christian faith. And that's why it only flourished within the Judeo-Christian context and nowhere else. What we see here is Sodom and Gomorrah and all the five cities are pagan cities. They're not cities. They're part of the covenantal line coming down from Noah, right, through Seth down to Abraham. Yet God is going to judge them. That demonstrates what we've been saying all along, and that is God rules all nations. No nation escapes the rule of God, that is Jesus Christ. All of them are under His rule. And He is the only judge to judge them. There are, there are no others who will judge them. So you don't have a judge for, the, for those who are Buddhists and judge for those who are Hindus and judge for Muslims and those who are Jews. No, all of them are ruled by Jesus Christ and only by Jesus Christ. There is no one else. And this is, by the way, part of our creed. This is what we proclaim Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. This is part of our creed. This is fundamental to our faith. And so we have this conversation between um, Abraham and God over the city. And you see how Abraham essentially is saying to God a couple of things. Number one, he's saying that the life of an innocent person is more important than the life of a wicked person. He's following this principle. Will the innocent person die because of the wicked? And God says, if I find 50, I will not destroy the city. And it brings him all the way down to 10. And you're kind of left wondering, could he have gone even further? But that's the first principle. The second principle is moral responsibility. The personal responsibility is very important. Because ten righteous people can save a wicked city. That is why bishops typically would like to have monks or nuns who are cloistered in their eparchy, in their diocese. Because these sacrificial souls can save the entire diocese. This is the mercy of God. But what is the purpose of saving? What does it mean to save? It doesn't mean that God is simply going to rescind from his decision to punish a city. It means that these ten people are the yeast that is going to transform the entire dough. It means that the society has still the power of conversion, of transformation, of turning towards the good. 
In case of Sodom, it was so bad that that was lost. It was no longer able to turn towards the good, to change its ways. And when a society reaches that point, then out of mercy, God will put an end to it. Because otherwise, this society will keep producing what? They will keep producing wicked people who will go to hell. You basically have now a place where people are bound to go to hell. And God puts an end to this. Do you understand? And so, in the final analysis, we see how one man had is given the grace to intercede for an entire city. One man. And no one in these cities knew that out there in the wilderness, there's this old man interceding for them. And he didn't proclaim it afterwards. Abraham didn't go to Lot and tell him, hey, you know what, I was the one who actually told God that you shouldn't do this and any other. None of that. None of that. So likewise, when we pick up a rosary and we pray, we're interceding. And we are somewhere out there in the desert or in the wilderness, and we do not see the fruits of our intercession. But it does not mean there are not present as long as we are living a righteous life, as long as we are trying to become saints. There is power of intercession. That is very hopeful for us. Provided we are faithful to the covenant, God will be faithful to the covenant as well, and he will bless us, and through us, bless the world. God bless you. Um, we have some time for questions. How come it's tolerated in all the masses? Because if you go back to the rubric, to the actual mass, you will see that they do not ask you to kneel. They ask you to stand or to sit. But they tolerate it because so many people have been accustomed to the, to the Latin rite that they actually have not had yet the ability to, I suppose, be able to educate everyone on the proper way of doing it. That's, that's why. But I, here in the Bible study, I, I take the occasion to let you know about the proper way. And you can always check the rubric, which is the actual description of how the liturgy is to proceed. And you see that they describe specific things we ought to do. Stand or sit, and we ought to do it all together because we represent the unity of the faith. We have to pray together as one body. So we can't have somebody kneeling and somebody standing and all that sort of stuff because it doesn't represent the, the, the unity of the people of God. Make sense? Okay. You had a question? Yeah. What is the normal way of receiving the Eucharist in the Latin rite? Let's ask this question first. What the Vatican Council says is that the normal way of receiving is on the tongue. Receiving on the hand is the extraordinary way. For instance, if you were to go to Rome, it's on the tongue. Right? That's the normal way. The extraordinary way is on the hands. What do you mean by that? In exceptional circumstances. Yes. Now, here in the United States, they were given, the, the, the United States asked for and received the, um, a, um, it's not an indult, it's a um, sort of an exception to the rule to be able to give it on the hand. And they were given this, but I know there's rumblings about revisiting this. One really good source to go back to would be the Council of Trent, because that same issue came up during the Council of Trent. And you had saints who spoke on this 
issue, particularly receiving the Eucharist under the two species separately. So, for instance, uh, Saint, um, his name will come back, he's a doctor of the church, and he was at the Council of Trent, and he spoke against the reception of the Eucharist under two species. And the interesting thing is that in the years that followed the Council of Trent, those countries that promulgated reception of the Eucharist in both species separately lost the faith in the Eucharist within one generation. And you can see why, because it's confusing, right? So my my, uh, own take on this is that when when we go to the Latin rite, we only receive under one species and on the tongue. We don't receive under both, right? Because it helps my children to focus on the fact they receive the Lord, not the bread and not the wine, okay? And uh, I do admit that I personally am very partial to the way we do it in the Maronite Church, which is by intention, okay? So it's, uh, we're not the only ones to do it, but I do, this to me is the most pedagogically sound way because it tells us that God is risen. He united his, bo- his, blo- his body with his blood, which is life. And what you're receiving is the risen Lord. And that is very, very helpful. Yes. Yeah, that is what is called by intinction. This is one way to do it. The Orthodox do it differently. They use a spoon. But in a, in a Maronite rite, they, they, the priest will hold it, and he will dip it, and then present it. And you all can only receive it on the tongue. You can't take it in your hands. Yeah. Uh, Chaldean Church? Same, exactly the same. Wonderful. So the Chaldean Church does it exactly the same way. And I'm very partial to this way because I find it to be helpful for the believer to know what they're receiving. Yes. Um, Well, so angel, the word angel means messenger by definition. And in scripture, the archangel Michael was actually not sent as a messenger. It's the archangel Gabriel who was sent to Our Lady in a couple of other cases, and the archangel Raphael who was sent to Tobias and Tobit, but not the archangel Michael. Michael showed up in battle, right? And he also came to aid Gabriel in his fight against the angel of Persia, okay, which is a very interesting text, right? When Gabriel was speaking to the prophet Daniel, he told him, I've been in contending with the angel of Persia for a month, and I could not come to you. I was prevented until Michael came to my aid. Okay? Having said that, messengers appear in Scripture without being specifically named. So, for instance, in the book of Judges, there are a number of cases where an angel will appear and speak to a human, but he doesn't name himself. So it isn't always the case that they will give their name. Another example we gave, we, we says when Hagar spoke, when, when an angel appeared to Hagar and spoke to her, he didn't give his name either. So it is not always the case that they will uh, give, reveal their name. Any other question? Yes. The, exactly. The question is, do you only receive one in Catholic Church? We do in my family because I don't want my kids to be confused over, am I receiving half or am I receiving all? And if I'm receiving all, why am I receiving twice? It is not wrong to receive twice. Obviously, they offer it, but I think it's usually confusing. Are you receiving it twice or are you receiving it once? But if you're receiving it once and you received everything in the, in the host, why receive from the cup? And there are no easy answers to those questions. That's why I keep it simple. Yes? Just a second. Yeah? Absolutely. When he spoke to Eve, he, he only spoke to her when uh, they broke the covenant. And only after 
speaking to the serpent, then to Adam, and finally to Eve. Yes, because it's a judgment. And I said earlier, when we are before God for our judgment, there are no husbands and there are no children. There are us and God. So anytime we are facing God as a judge, He's going to speak to us directly. Yes. Very good question. Why don't we? Because that was the, that was the institution of the Eucharist with priests, not lady. That's why you see the priest doing one thing and we're doing another. That's exactly why we have a sanctuary, because this is the, the, the sanctuary where the Last Supper takes place. And we are apart from it. It comes to us. It's a very good question. That's why. And precisely, some people in, the, in this modern world would like to level the role of the lady with that of the priest. And these issues do tend to confuse roles. But I will not say any more about that right now. Yes. All the angels are united on God, but every angel is uh, helping men, and everyone have different circumstances. And therefore, when they are helping men in different circumstances, there may be goals that seemingly seem to be opposing each other. It doesn't mean that they cannot contend um, for the benefit of their people they're protecting differently. But it doesn't mean they're actually in open war. We have to be, again, the word fighting needs to be properly understood. Okay? Very good question. Does this mean that by the end of the world, does this mean there will be no good people left around? Um, Jesus said, when, he, when I come back, shall I find faith on the face of the earth? So the answer is, we don't really know. It can go either way. But we also know that the church will last until the end of the world. Right? So it doesn't necessarily imply that there are not going to be any good people, but perhaps even with their presence, there is no way to redeem the world for it to be uh, brought back on the way of salvation. But fundamentally, we don't really know. It's a mystery still. Yes. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.